0: Welcome to the best of 2021 series of the Urban Property Investor. This is week three of my four-week holiday, and I can't wait to bring you a market update in the coming weeks. For now, though, here's one of my most downloaded episodes of 2021. Only 1% of people really succeed with real estate investing. So why did 99% of people fail, and what do you need to do to ensure you're not actually a statistic? If you own real estate already, today's show just might burst your bubble. We explore property management and reveal what type of buyer you actually are. Nobody really wants to own anything these days, let's face it, because when you own something, you have to be accountable for it. So in this episode, we will talk about how to navigate the property owning journey, because often the conversation in real estate is centered around buying and selling. But what about this middle bit? We're gonna crack the code, folks. Welcome to episode 79 of the Urban Property Investor. We can either be buying real estate, holding real estate, or moving or transitioning into retirement. A lot of the focus I think about real estate is quite often about the buying part, but what about the holding part? Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, we're digging into code cracking stuff. Yes, we're going to dig into what it takes to hold real estate over the longer term, and I'm here and determined to talk to you about what type of journey potentially you are in. Yes, if you own real estate already, today's show really might Bust your bubble because there is a lot to explore when it comes to holding real estate. Yes, we are playing another game of Donkey Kong and it is without question the idea of property management, the idea of holding real estate for a long period of time, potentially revealing what kind of buyer you actually are. Now, obviously, when it comes to owning real estate... We can either be buying real estate, holding real estate, or moving or transitioning into retirement. A lot of the focus I think about real estate is quite often about the buying part, but what about the holding part? This is where we find ourselves today in this podcast. How do we hold something? People hate holding things. People hate owning things. It's much easier to go through life owning nothing than owning things because obviously when you own stuff you're accountable to it and i think without question accountability is one of the biggest dysfunctions that most people have no one wants to be accountable for anything no one wants to be accountable for having a wife having kids having property uh it all adds up so how can we get to the end game making sure we uh have a good experience along the way and really being honest with ourselves when it comes to the type of real estate we own and really a lot of today's conversation is going to be about potentially offloading some lemons and actually rebuying some real estate. So it's a big conversation, it's a tricky conversation but I think it's one worth having. Hey I've got a new backdrop, yes I've uh, decided to Set up my home studio, my FOBO, in another room, Uh, a room which I wasn't in previously. Yes, the Gospodar got to me. My previous room was kind of connected to the road and the Gospodar was out there all the day, basically uh, looking after his house. And uh, so I decided to try a new angle. I'm still pretty close to the Gospodar, so hopefully he doesn't come back and uh, mow those lawns. Uh, outside this window, but I'm a little bit further away. Hey, what about my backdrop? Um, I've tried really hard to make it look pretty. If you're watching on YouTube, yes, I've got some uh, things which really sum up me, if you like. I've got uh, some art, which um, really is something I'm really passionate about. I've got my little art book there. Uh, I've got my tree from Lord Howe Island. Yes, um, I brought a tree back to the mainland from Lord Howe Island else have i got i've got the place economy here a book on the place economy probably my other passion is greek food i've got a book on greek food uh so this is my new backdrop the weird little candle that you never light um a fragrant uh ball here i've got a gold ball i don't know why anyone has a gold ball in the house but i have a gold ball so now we've caught up I think it's time to lift off. I think it's time to talk about holding real estate. And I've done some podcasts on holding real estate before, understanding the rental market, the hearth and homers, uh, these type of different ways society is unfolding. But we're going to dig a little bit deeper today. Um, If you haven't listened to the hearth and home episode, go back and listen to it. These people are, you know, out there. There's different types of people transforming society. We've got leading lifestylers, we've got hearth and homers, we've got the metro techs, all transforming the demographics of society. Of course, one of the big challenges with real estate is today uh, we are entering a have and have not society. So we want to talk about these big demographic shifts occurring in the rental community so we can really start to plan and not fail. Now, when you think about real estate, 99% of people actually fail to become wealthy out of real estate. Have you ever wondered what percentage of people own, for example, more than three properties? Well, it's not many. Actually, it's around 150,000 Australians own more than three properties. Now, why is three an interesting number? Because obviously, for many people, we want to live off income. You know, three properties can throw out some cash flow, and of course, that can mean for those 150-odd thousand people, they are well on their way to success because they have put enough capital into the marketplace to get enough rental return in the marketplace to end up on cash flow later in life. In fact, it gets even slimmer the more people own even more real estate. If you want to know how many people, for example... Own five properties based on the ABS statistics, it's 28,000 people. Six properties, only 14,000 people. So that's amazing, right? When you think about uh, those people you see in workplace groups or Facebook groups that have, you know, six, seven, eight properties, that is amazing. They've done the hard yards. They've Got themselves to a position where they've got enough capital in the market and now they just really need to hold on to that capital. I was looking at a post the other day and a lady put down she got to 10 properties and something in her life, um, you know, manifested and it wasn't great and she had to sell eight of those 10 properties. She's got two left. So holding real estate is a lot harder. Then certainly buying real estate. And of course, today one would argue as well with the way prices are, and that really there is no secret hotspots anymore where you can stumble across a property market that no one's ever heard of before, and properties are really cheap. That for the most part, you know, buying real estate and ending up with a portfolio of properties is going to be a little bit of hard work. So we want to make sure we absolutely get it right along that journey. Now, most people I coach have the magic number. The magic number, as we know, as we've mentioned on this podcast before is $100,000 passive income. To end up on $100,000 passive income, you need at least $2,000,000 worth of real estate paid off. And you probably even want a roof over your head to live in as well. So you're going to need a fair amount of debt along this journey to end up in a passive income place. You're going to need a bit of a strategy. And as we know, real estate is a bit of a sport in Australia. A lot of people love real estate, love talking about real estate. The real estate uh, uh, information and news always is in the media And of course, if you did a Google search just today, and I did this this morning, uh, the results of people looking into real estate is around globally 275 million people right now are are Googling real estate. That is crazy, right? Every point, you know, 6.6% of a second, someone is thinking about real estate. So we know that real estate is a big, big topic for people. Most people think they can make it in real estate as an investor, but the truth of the matter is most people don't make it as an investor in real estate. The pain and gain report by CoreLogic reveals what really does happen. Most people buy real estate, they hold it for less than six years, and then they start to uh, worry about the performance of the real estate and turf it. And so what happens is a lot of people today are sitting on lemons when it comes to property. The property's had moderate levels of of growth. The property um, maybe is stuck and is stagnating. And for a lot of people, particularly after around six years, they get itchy and they go, you know what, I think it's better to actually get out of real estate and I could use my money Better to support other things in my life. That's what happens. That's why CoreLogic has a pain and gain report. And there is some interesting, uh, you know, things that occur in that. And uh, that a lot of people actually lose money out of real estate. If you buy real estate and you sell it within six years, the odds are you're going to lose money. And so we need to work out how to buy the right real estate so we actually end up with real estate that we don't want to sell within six years and lose that money. When we track, uh, I guess, some of the comments, and obviously I've got a you know fairly good business in real estate. I uh, have a six-star team. I run uh, multiple real estate companies. I have over 100 people involved in those businesses, helping investors all day, every day. Overcome roadblocks, obstacles, and challenges within the real estate community. Uh, one of the things you often see, uh, and we capture all this data, is the first thing a lot of people, um, you know, comment about with real estate is they've received no capital growth. Uh, other comments can be things like, I've had to go and reduce my rents. Uh, other common language around real estate is, I can't afford the property. It, the mortgage is too expensive. Other comments which are really common, and we track all this stuff, is the ongoing costs of repairs and maintenance are making it very hard for me as a property investor to own. Other things, my tenant is painful. Just, these are real comments. This is what is happening right now in the real estate marketplace. A lot of people are getting the wrong advice around real estate and ending up with properties which basically cause them to second guess why they even bought the property in the first place. Now, as we know, real estate has volatility. There is a volatility index to real estate. Uh, Things happen all the time that are outside everyone's control. I can't control it. You can't control it. No one can control it. No one can control, for example, the command-led economy. The command-led economy is the uh, powers that be. Policymakers, decision-makers, government command the economy. They want to introduce a 1st homeowner grant, which softens rents. You can't control that, right? Uh, you can't control, for example, interest rates. You can't control the volatility of the economy every month. You certainly can't control wage growth or household debt. Uh, And this is part of the challenge of owning real estate. And I think we can all agree that with some of these macroeconomic concepts, it is uh, something that we just have to surrender that, you know, there is more good days out there than there are bad days. There are certainly, uh, you know... Uh, bad days until there is not, then there is good days, right? It's, it's kind of as simple as that. But, but from a microeconomic logic, a lot of people struggle. They struggle, uh, for example, um, with the idea that media clickbaits them, they struggle with their own personal debt, they struggle with their own personal pressures. They struggle with some of the stagnation that is involved in real estate. Real estate will go through periods of stagnation. Uh, there is an idea around regret as well, regret theory, and I'll I'll come back and do another podcast on I think on a lot of the behaviors which influence people to make terrible decisions in real estate. But absolutely, we at a micro level. Are uh, on a journey, and many things come into that world to disrupt it, whether they're personal issues or whether they're macroeconomic issues. We're going to have to surrender to the fact that we're on a long term journey here, and things are going to happen along the way. And along that way, I think we are playing an obstacle course. Now, we've all played Monopoly. We all understand we've got to get around the Monopoly board. Uh, You know, we can't land on a problematic card. Uh, We can't pick up the community chess card and end up with a problem, right? And I think sometimes as simple as Monopoly is as a family fun affair, it teaches us so much about real estate that we need to buy quality locations. If we can work out to add some value to that real estate, that's great, like putting houses or hotels down. And uh, real estate is a little bit of chance and luck involved, but we can pre-plan a doctrine to get to the end game. I think um, many people who perhaps are playing the real version of Monopoly often struggle and choose things which are going to lose the money and shorten their experience when it comes to owning real estate. The number one rule of real estate, as we probably all know, is you can't lose money. Don't lose money. And when I say lose money, real estate has a volatility index. We know on any given day, real estate can buffer by around 10% in value. That's just normal. Uh, You know, if there's no properties on the market that month, your real estate's going to go up. If there's 50 properties on the month uh, in your suburb that month, your real estate probably is going to buffer down. That's just the volatility of real estate. But we don't want to lose money. And we generally only lose money when we have to sell real estate. And again, the doom and gloom report, Boom and bust, or whatever it's called, from Core Logic, um, it explains that we need to get past the six-year period. But I think for real estate to perform the best, it has to actually go for around fifteen years. So you need to hold this thing for fifteen years, and during that time, guess what? You're probably going to have five to seven vacancies, five to seven new tenants. You're going to have to do a renovation. You may have to adjust your rent up and down. So I teach this principle that there are kind of four quadrants to being a long-term investor. There's choosing a really quality location, which I know I talk about a lot on this podcast. uh, And I'll reiterate it, but location, location, location. You can't really go past it. The second is the property and you, right? Like your relationship with the property and how to make that relationship tick. We're going to talk about that as well. Third part of the puzzle is the tenant marketplace. And again, I've done some great podcasts on specifically understanding the uh, type of consumers in the marketplace, where they're a leading lifestyle, where they're a metro tech, where they're, uh, they're basically struggling to make ends meet. And I think, The final part of the quadrant is without question having a bit of a team, right? Because uh, as we know, real estate is becoming more expensive. When things become more expensive, the volatility increases. And as such, you need to have a pretty thorough approach to how you're going about being an investor. Otherwise, you're going to really be like 99% of most other people who Basically, buy a property and and that's about it, right? Um, that's that's where it ends. And uh, as we know, to end up on a $100,000 passive income, you've got to get more capital into the market. We live in a capitalist society. In a capitalist society, you have to throw capital at the market. That's the point of a capitalist society. People who prosper in a capitalist society have capital working for them. And people that don't, basically, do not invest. It is as simple as that. So obviously, the first part of the quadrant to owning real estate for a long period of time is location. You know I teach this. Let's choose a location where there is high probability of really good live-work-play dynamics, where people are smart, where there is an element of well-being, and where people can move around quickly. Obviously, in cities, Uh, and even regional towns. There are only so many streets, suburbs, and niche areas where it is affordable to buy quality live, work, play, wellness, knowledge, mobility, dynamics. But if we can get it, that is what we want because we're going to make money, right? And I was uh, talking to uh, Jason, uh, my business partner, the other day, and I do think we've crossed the chasm where almost like traditional logic around real estate of, you know, let's buy well, let's, um, you know, uh, add so much value to the real estate some uh, way. It's kind of being replaced by what we would call behavioral economic logic where all of a sudden we need to understand for, particularly for rental growth, uh, what actually behavioral influences are going to affect real estate. And of course, I teach this principle, right? There are 13 cash flow strategies, 13 of them. And uh, at the moment, um, they are all linked around behavioral economic ideas. So let's look at one of them, uh, the urban behavioral economy. When we look at really the behavioral economy at the moment, people want sea change, they want tree change, they want space change or they want urban change. So if your real estate is not connected to that, how are you going to get rent increases? Uh, The next one is the skilled economy. Um, People are becoming smarter. If you invest where the smarter people are, they're going to earn more. Uh, The rising uh, wealth around knowledge is real, so you're going to get more rent. Again, a cash flow strategy, the place economy. There are only so many places in our entire cities that are considered brands, that people want to hang out there, that they ooze social appeal. Think of Bondi in Sydney. There are only so many places. Those places get higher rents. Again, we get this trend of rental growth. The green economy is transforming society. A trend around that is, does your property even offer solar? Does it offer electric cars? We know the thermal world is changing. Again, these trends and cash flow strategies need to be applied to your investment properties for you to end up retiring on income. Uh, Contemporary mixed use. I talked about this uh, in a recent podcast. This is a, a convention you need to get used to. Does your property actually create a mixed use dynamic as a residential property? Can you short stay your property on Airbnb and make a daily rental return as opposed to a weekly rental return? Uh, is it superior to the market? These are cash flow strategies. Remember, a lot of these cash flow strategies get around the the idea that we need the right behaviour in our real estate for it to grow in rental value. Obviously, one of the big uh, ideas around real estate is tax and depreciation. You know, I always think it's quite interesting. You know, some people buy real estate. Older than 1984 and get no incentives when it comes to depreciation, no extra cash flow. Obviously, other trends are like the hotelification of real estate. We are seeing literally properties which are just ooze so much vibe and um, offer so much lifestyle, whether they're homes, apartments or townhouses, that the trend of for example working from home people want them they'll pay more rent for them because they're more comfortable to live in and again so many property investors buy a property it has no behavioral incentives at all i love pods pods are my one of my favorite cash flow strategies what's a pod a pod is a pedestrian orientated development area right what if your property that you own as a investor fundamentally the consumer or the tenant can walk everywhere walkable urbanism it is a cash cow you know think about just how many properties are close to really good things like beaches uh, forests or cbds and then think about well how many properties are actually walkable to those dynamics like even Um, some suburbs are close but you still got to get in the car to get there all of a sudden what if you didn't have to get in the car how much rent are you going to end up on within walkable suburbs again this idea of these cash flow strategies is now more behavioral than anything else walkable urbanism the mobility effect live work pay proximity mobility Uh, And then you've got things like the cultural demographics, things like dinks, double income, no kids, adding rental um, power through income to your property. Now, I can tell you a lot of people are going to wake up with real estate investments which fundamentally never grow in rental value or perhaps when we look at the rental growth, it's like you know, you bought the property, it had a rent of $400 a week and by the time you reach retirement, maybe the rent is $450 a week. That's really not really what the point of investment properties are. We want to get to retirement, that $400 a week becomes eight or $900 a week. Remember, half of Australia is broke right now. They are broke. They are literally... Um, you know, half a week away from not being able to pay you the rent. So, how on earth are you going to be able to pressure double in rent? That's why we use the behavioral economy. That's why we work out things like place economics, skilled economics, green economics, contemporary economics. All of these things are adding so much value to the real estate. So, we know location's a big part of the puzzle. The second part is the property and you, right? And I think, you know, when we look at uh, the property, we have to assess it in four different risk sections. And I've talked about this before, but I think it is really good to just, you know, once again, we, uh, we, we, you know, digest a bit of this stuff, right? Remember, volatility, there is a risk to real estate. And this is where most people, um, when they're buying, when the frenzy's out, when the herd is moving, when this momentum effect is happening, particularly now, a lot of people want to jump into the market but forget liquidity, right? They forget it's easy to buy, hard to sell. And liquidity is affected in real estate quite often when the appeal of appearance starts to disappear. When a property... um, is bought. And quite often right now in real estate, we we are categorically seeing A-grade properties being very hard to find and buy. I'm still finding them, but very hard to find and buy. B-grade, um, C-grade and D-grade properties on the marketplace. And really, um, if you've got a lemon to sell, you degrade property, it's the best time to sell. Honestly, it's the best time because no one's going to buy it any other time. The fact that there's more people missing out on real estate right now, you throw that degrade sucker on the market and get rid of it. Make it someone else's problem. Because as we'll explore, I'm going to talk to you about like some of the challenges with degrade real estate and where it really does sit on your future income profile. Remember, we want to lend up on income, so why do we own assets which are fundamentally liabilities? Remember, real estate can be an asset or it can be a liability. Most real estate ends up being liabilities for people if they don't understand how to manage their asset. So we often refer to this thing called property management, which is, um, you know, the idea that, you know, someone's going to manage your asset, but really. I personally think property management needs a bit of an overhaul around Australia and I'm determined to be part of that overhaul. But real estate has uh, some risks associated with it and one of them is definitely appeal risk or liquidity risk. If you can't uh, certainly create own a piece of real estate which appeals to the masses, you're going to suffer potentially... Uh, Capital loss and also rental loss, right? Now, we often talk about this idea that you want your real estate to appeal to uh, the owner-occupier market. You want it to appeal to groups because quite often as an investor, we buy an investment property suitable as an investment property because it's the right price and the right return, but no owner from a first homeowner group, the upgrader group, the downsizer group would ever buy it. So all of a sudden, we've taken on something which is basically a rent-for-life property. There's no appeal to it. So it is very, very illiquid. And when we own illiquid real estate, we go nowhere, right? We do not want to own illiquid real estate. So uh, for me, um, one of the big ways to ensure we're not buying illiquid real estate is to make sure we follow principle number one. Which is to make sure that we have an appealing property, and a lot of that is around street appeal. Street appeal is is very much a big thing in real estate. In fact, uh, real estate agents will tell you that a good property with great street appeal will uh, fetch on resale, you know, fifteen to fifteen percent premium over properties with, you know, very poor street appeal. And again, I've seen investors lose a bucket load of money when their street appeal is stripped away. And and this, again, um, is one of the dynamics around owning assets. You've got to make sure you maintain them well and look after them because I've literally seen complexes where, you know, the landscaping died and uh, some of the trees were removed to create a bare landscape and a property's gone from to $300,000 overnight. Why? Well, the landscaping created a nice ambience, a great street appeal, and added to the safety factors of the house. And of course, all of a sudden, because the property is a bit rough around the edges, uh, the next time the property comes up for rent, people pay less for it. And of course, when people are paying less in rent, sometimes they come from a lower socioeconomic group and of course then all of a sudden we start to find that the asset is falling into a bit of a uh, you know an, a less popular part of the market place so we got to keep up our appeal of our assets and i always teach the 1030 rule i know you've heard it um, many times it's pretty simple for every 10 years of age the property is, you need to factor in around $30,000 worth of capital costs to maintain or improve the asset. Now, you think about strata properties, uh, quite often they have a capital costs um, expenditure plan. And, uh, you know, some of the um, reasons people buy houses is to avoid capital costs. But, you know, as the saying goes, you know, The ferry captain comes for his ticket one day and I think a lot of older um, houses today are really subject to some massive capital costs. And as we know, the economy is growing and changing and morphing and things like thermal efficiency are coming into real estate, things like green economics, green technology, home automation. All this stuff is just making almost this uh, concept of real estate. We're going through this concept of... Um, certain things becoming obsolete. And uh, I I think one of the biggest risks, again, to ending up on financial freedom and failing at real estate is a lot of people own the wrong assets right now, assets which are really full of capital costs and they're getting no return on that capital. They're getting a diminishing return. So fundamentally, the functionality of that asset is disappearing and of course, that's leading to a place where people are sitting on a bit of a ticking time bomb, and really do have to play hot potato. Now, think about it this way: like, um, if you, if you can imagine, like, some properties today are already 70 years of age, and people own them as investments, and they're only 35 years of age. So, by the time they retire at 60, the asset, which is 70, is going to be 95, and then uh, they have to live off it for another 30 years they're going to be trying to get a rental income off a property which is over 100 years old. That makes no sense to me as a property investor. And of course, I think, you know, as a landlord, um, which, you know, today I wanted to sort of talk about holding real estate. So we're talking about being a landlord. We need to make a decision. Is that property even worth keeping? Like, are we actually holding on to a bit of a lemon? are we better off actually upgrading our asset base? One of the challenges, of course, is a lot of people, unless they liquidate the asset, can't actually borrow money to go again. So it's a bit of a coaching call at this point where you go, well, you know what? Is this thing really the right vehicle to get me to retirement? I can't buy five properties, 10 properties. I'll never earn the amount of money to do that. So do I actually... um, Uh, you know, reposition my portfolio to be an income producing portfolio. And again, this is where we have to make sure we're part of the right part of the income producing pocket of the marketplace. So I think, you know, um, you know, when you start to inspect your real estate more often, you start to work out, you know, is it an asset which is full of maintenance? Is it something where I'm dithering on and actually not planning Proactively to spend capital on the asset. Is the asset functionally obsolete? Now think about like things that are obsolete, right? And I think you know, quite often the tech space does it the best when it comes to functional obsolism, which is things like, you know, you know, when I grew up, the color TV was the rank arena. It was huge, the size of a small car. If you go over to my mom and dad's house, they've still got it. The rank arena they still somehow make it work. It's huge. It's like half the size of their living room. It's functionally obsolete. Today, you know, you can stream TV into your iPhone. I mean, uh, we are literally rapidly transforming. And so when you think of many of the properties which are obsolete today, um, it's not just talking about, well, the kitchen's a bit uh, old school, uh, you know, or you know the shag pile carpet we are talking about things which are rapidly changing thermal efficiency in real estate is a real thing uh, the carbon footprint of real estate is a real thing so again we need to make sure we have some functional functionality and our asset is not bland boring and obsolete now i've owned bland and boring properties which were obsolete the only way around making them not obsolete was to either sell them or to activate them using the secret language of real estate. And I teach the secret language of real estate. I've done a podcast on the secret language of real estate. Go listen to the podcast. Simply put, the secret language of real estate is that human beings um, really do pay more for properties with either by capital or by rental by um, feeling good about real estate. Think about it, right? When people are standing outside an auction and um, they're all excited to buy a property, it's how they feel. They want that asset. So we want investments that make people feel good. I teach functional design, behavioral design, and reflective design logic. Um, To understand that, there's a podcast on its own. Go listen to it. But when we understand that we can bring certain appeal to real estate, we can certainly rectify real estate, which we currently own. And I think a lot of people are sitting on real estate where it is underperforming and the capital costs as holding the asset back. In other words, people don't want to spend the $30,000 to uplift the asset to get the extra $100 a week in rent because, um, you know, the, 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 Cost of doing that is prohibitive to many people. Again, if you're going to play the game of real estate, you need to play the game of capital costs. It goes hand in hand. Now, if you've ever played Monopoly, the best way to understand capital costs is you'll go down around the Monopoly board, you'll land on community chess, you'll pick up a card and it'll say, um, you have repairs and maintenance on all of your houses and hotels. Um, You know, please pay. Pay community chess X amount of money. That is what is fundamentally happening in the real estate community at the moment. And what happens is if you don't inject that capital into your real estate, remember the 1030 rule, uh, you won't get good tenants. Uh you are going to attract people who are less well off. And of course, what happens is your real estate starts to go stagnating sideways or even down in value because all of a sudden you're leaving an aspirational pull and settling for something less impressive. Now, again, this is all around liquidity, right? The liquidity risk of real estate. If you let your real estate fall behind, it is less sellable. When the, it does sell, someone's going to pay you less for it, not more for it, which of course affects your retirement. The second risk I think, is really important to discuss. and and I know um, many of these conversations I've done full lectures on, but is insurance risk. You know, we are in a really interesting space. For me, the biggest risk to real estate into the future is insurance, the rising cost of insurance. Some assets are uninsurable. The rise of thermal uh, all of a sudden making certain green assets more insurable than others the legislation around fire protection, smoke alarms, all this kind of stuff is meaning that we as property investors just are have to make sure we understand insurance. And again, this is where a lot of people are actually underinsured. They don't know the rising cost of inflation to build or rebuild. They own a, a property they're paying insurance for, um, they tell the insurer it's it's worth less than what it actually is uh, to save you know a couple of hundred bucks on the premium for the insurance. And then all of a sudden we are now living in a place where we need to actually potentially over insure, not under insure, because of green swan events. A green swan event is obviously a event where you know the uh, the climate ta- attacks our asset, right? And, uh, you know, I've had this, right? I tell this story a lot. I am a uh, victim of climate change. I own a really gun asset in Cairns. Cairns has a lot of cyclones. Those cyclones rip into the place. And as such, where my property was located was considered highly vulnerable to big storms and cyclones And as such, no one would insure the asset. I eventually found one insurer who would take on the asset. The premium to own the property was so expensive that uh, fundamentally, if I held the asset in retirement, I would have an asset with no income. What is the point of real estate if it does not produce income? even with capital growth, you still want to live off income in retirement. And this is where I think we are now going through this sort of period of um, climate realisation. And uh, I know for me, I certainly am very pro um, making, uh, you know, people involved in the real estate industry, you know, wake up and have a bit of a carbon plan. I've actually got a carbon plan myself where I – you know, offset all of my assets with, um, you know, basically paying for for uh, carbon offsets. So you need insurance. As we know, probably the most important is building insurance, content insurance, liability insurance, and, of course, uh, landlord's insurance, which really does help you for uninspected problems. And, look, um, I think sometimes, you know, we just got to realise there is also some things that untoward that accidentally happened to us and we just need to be mindful that um, you know sometimes shit happens, right and that's real estate. So uh, you know, whether we get a bad tenant where whether we uh, end up with someone who causes a bit of a drama and leaves a mess like that's part of owning real estate you you can't beat yourself up over these little things when it comes to, Um, that, that is why you have insurance. If someone absconds from paying rent, that's why you have insurance, right? So don't underinsure yourself. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of property investors tap out because, um, they don't quite understand it, but this is where location comes into play, right? We want really good locations. So we don't end up with a, you know, climate impacted piece of real estate where all of the income goes to supporting the asset um fundamentally it's insurance or or capital costs right we want to make sure we end up in a place where we're absolutely cream yet and cash flows coming in once we strip that mortgage back we just want income 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 right the next risk is market risk this is where most people really do play the game of um of real estate most people you know worry I guess about the market. Remember, macroeconomic things are really outside your control policies, decisions, interest rates. You can't really do much about them, right? All you can do for the market, make sure you follow the principles of PI, population, infrastructure, and employment. Uh, when you play that, you're going to put yourself in a position to get the best of rental growth into the future because your assets going to be near infrastructure, it's going to be near employment, and it's going to be with a population base. Then at a more momentum level, you can look at the supply and demand metrics, you can look at the yield performance metrics, and uh, you can look at the demographics and just make sure that you're into the demographics. Remember, I like teaching behavioral e- information around demographics like dinks, double income, no kids. Why not buy real estate in a suburb where there's uh, more proportion of people that actually have two solid incomes without uh, liabilities? What happens? You end up getting a higher rate of rental growth. A lot of people just don't have a rental growth plan. What is your rental growth plan? Do you actually have a rental growth plan or do you just have a asset diminishing in value this is the challenge for people right because to end up um in a place where financial freedom is we need to outperform the marketplace now capital cities regional communities have a vacancy average um they have a yield average and uh really our job is to make sure that we are understanding that we're on a trajectory to outperform Um, the marketplace outperform. If a vacancy rate is 3%, you know, we want our asset at 1%. If a yield is at, you know, 5%, we want to know we can outstrip that yield faster by buying the right asset, right? And of course, I think when it comes to um, real estate, a lot of the focus is around, you know, Yeah, obviously the market, right? And uh, there's so many little elements behind, you know, getting the right team behind your asset. And I'm a big believer in, you know, teamwork and that marketing is a is a big part of real estate. And we'll talk about that a little later on. But uh, the third risk, which I know we've um, covered in past episodes, but I'm going to continue to harp on about it, is operational risk. We do not want uh, a declining functionality of our real estate. We do not want broke tenants in our property. Uh, a lot of people I am steering clear of when it comes to real estate. When you think about operational activity in real estate, you know, we need rising rents, we need our running costs to come down, and we need to factor in how to avoid spending bucket loads of money on improvements. That's the only levers we can pull. Think about levers for a moment. What can you pull to make income work on your asset? You can put the rents up. You can streamline your running costs and you can streamline your improvement costs. Most people have way too many costs not factored in, in improvements, which is making their running costs increase, which is making their rent decrease. Uh, And of course, this is where you as a property investor need to go, um, okay, am I at a point where my asset to improve it is too expensive? What's going to happen if I don't improve the asset? The running costs are going to increase. And as such, because the running costs are going to increase, the appeal of the asset is going to drop. So my rents are going to decrease. Once this happens you are in a world of uncertainty. And this is where you'll start to go, you know, should I sell the property, you'll speak to people. um, And a lot of people, you know, uh, will sort of give you um, some commentary around, you know, real estate is a long term sport. But certainly, I think some real estate just needs to be offloaded because it is going nowhere. It is going nowhere fast. There's Plenty of real estate where you cannot even get a tax deduction on the real estate where the improvements are so heavy to rectify, the running costs are blowing out and of course the rent is going sideways or backwards and, and of course this is attracting even you know the wrong type of tenant. So tenants want stuff man, like they don't want weird creepy anymore. They want great layouts and design, they want light interiors, functional kitchens um, you know, people want good bathrooms. They want security. Uh, you know, they want environmental reductions and technology. They want low maintenance, right? And again, um, when we think about the operational costs of where the world is headed, I talk about this one a lot. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the Victorian government's come out and um, pretty much sort of explain to people you've got to create a more thermally efficient rental property. You can't rent people properties with, um, you know, your uh, you know, where uh, the heating and cooling is dysfunctional. You can't rent properties where, you know, a lot of the heating is is um, escaping the house by virtue of bad windows. And all of a sudden, you know, property investors are having a bit of a wake up call where they're going, well, you know, what is this property actually worth keeping? You know, by the time they factor in these expenses. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And of course, you know, with um, COVID nineteen coming along and changing the behavioural logic of what people want, you know, today people want a bit of comfort because they are working from home. And uh, uh you know, whether that's a one bedroom unit, a two bedroom unit, a three bedroom villa, a four bedroom townhouse, or a five bedroom house, um, all of a sudden it's actually uh, just you know that comfort factor that all of a sudden the hot um, rental properties want. So there's a diminishing return in real estate, which I think we need to factor in, right? At the end of the day, um, we need to understand there is usually a better property being produced um, as time goes on. So we want to make sure that we've got uh, a 30-year plan. And uh, I think, you know, because uh, to pay off a loan is 30 years, I like real estate, which from a design point of view, you put no money into for at least 20 years. And then when you do your 20 year renovation, you're factoring maybe $30,000 worth of capital costs. By the time the property's 30, you're retired. The property is then just a workhorse of cash flow. You don't want this stuff, which is just going to drag you down constantly. By the time you retire, 30 years from now, you're uh, you got yourself a you know 75-year-old asset. Doesn't sound fun to me. Remember, we're also going into the green economy, which uh, you know, potentially the behavioral change in real estate will be things like tenants wanting electric car charges or home automation inside their asset to run it more efficiently. These are some of the things we just need to start to consider as a property owner, as we want to run a really good budget. Remember. We want to make sure our budget is strong. That we're, um, you know, getting more rent uh, to cover off any inflation in costs to run the budget. When you think about what it costs to run an asset, I think most people do not do their own cash flow. Have you done a cash flow on your real estate recently? Uh, you might have bought it on a certain yield, but are you factoring in the electric? Uh, you know the. The, the cost to run insurance, um, the cost to run repairs and maintenance, the cost to run, you know, fire management, um, disbursements, uh, management fees, and uh, any other sort of things that you typically might pay for to run that asset. And again, I also think a lot of people do not understand depreciation. This is one thing that, you know, I think um, – Is a bit of an oversight at the moment in the real estate community. No one really talks about it anymore. Uh, You know, depreciation allowances are available for properties younger than 1984. So if you buy a property that was born in 1985 or uh, older, you're not going to get one cent from plant and equipment or capital works. uh, In other words, building and chattels or building and... uh, you know, the the, the um, uh, fixtures and fittings from the asset at all. And so when you think about, like, the average property, um, if we were to buy, you know, a new property, we might get in cash flow, real cash flow, comes back to you in tax. Uh, you can claim it um, actually faster than waiting for the yearly tax return. There's a thing called, um, you know, a... Uh, 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 149 variation, I think it's called. They change the name all the time, but um, it basically allows you to c- uh, claim your tax weekly, right? So think about a, a newer property, brand new. Um, you know, year one, you're going to get, um, on average, maybe ten to $14,000 cash flow, cash flow. By year five, it's more like five to $9,000 cash flow. In fact, if you just went on to any calculator right now, On Google and use, you know, depreciator, um, uh, calculator, or if you used um, one of the other groups, calculator, um, you would find that a new property over the first five years of owning it will produce around $60,000 in cash flow more than a property built after 1984 or before 1984. So it's amazing, right? Remember, in 2019 also, the budget handed down then uh, actually changed depreciation. So basically, new properties get full depreciation. Anything between 1984 and 2019 basically uh, gets basically building depreciation, but not internal, shadows, fixtures, and fittings depreciation. So you are roughly half it, right? So again, I think... Um, there is some intrinsic value to this cash flow because all it allows you to do is go longer owning the asset. And again, um, obviously, the advantage of owning a, a property built from, say, 1984 to 2021, 2022, is that the asset is, um, you know, basically less uh, vulnerable to huge capital expenses and you know i was I was speaking to um uh you know jason and uh you know he was telling me about a property which basically when it rains the internet does not work in the asset because where the um basically where the old cabling is basically is connected to um you know certain um water runoff and um when you think about that right like like the expense to retrofit the the conduit to to fix that asset is just ridiculous that is what we would call a non-income producing repair right it adds no value to the real estate and uh, an older property of his is now um you know challenged in that respect so man like you've you've got to be on top of your game with this stuff because we want to get to financial freedom. All we got to do is hold real estate 15, 20 years and it's going to do its thing. But a lot of real estate ain't doing anything. It's not going anywhere. It's just going backwards because um, it's not in the right location and it is not attracting the right kind of genre to it, right? So um, by the way, I think you should play this in two speed because this is a pretty long episode um, which I probably should have mentioned at the beginning. But I put landlords into three groups, okay? And uh, you can cross-pollinate all three groups. I know I cross-pollinate all three groups. For some of my assets, I am now a managed-maintained landlord. They are great assets. They are proven assets. They grow. They get rental growth. They are stellar performers. And really, I can hold them all the way to my retirement. I do not need to worry about future big costs or expenses. I don't need to worry about the rising costs to run them. And I know I'm going to get rent increases because demographically speaking, they are in the right places with the right people. The second group, um, which I am a landlord of, is the manage and regrow group. This is where um, I, uh, or manage and rebuild group, I, I, you know, regrow, rebuild, right? So I've got uh, probably two assets which I'm holding onto at the moment, um, which really I, uh, well, probably one really. I, I think the other one you know is, is good enough to get where it needs to go. I've got one asset which I need to sell off. It's a lemon. Um, I'm going to put it on the market later this year. I uh, am not going to get any success with that property what is fundamentally happening with it, Uh, the cost of capital to inject in it, it's just not worth it, versus what it would perform as a rental property. Um, The cost to run it is going up and the rents are going nowhere, right? It's as simple as that for me. I've got to let the asset go. Um, I'll get around to it and uh, I'm going to strike when the market is best. Again, uh, for me, I will take... Um, what money I have in that deal and I will go and reinvest it. Now a lot of people are stuck in this space where it's managed and rebuilt and the challenge is a lot of people are now stuck with assets whether they sell them they can't rebuy because they don't qualify for a loan. So double check if it is worth you selling and uh, maneuvering that money into other asset classes or actually selling and paying off debt on some of your manage and maintain assets or um, actually if you can sell and rebuy that is obviously the best value proposition um, to be in even though it, it there is an exit and entry costs um, in some respects we have to factor in opportunity costs right are you creating a faux pas or blunder opportunity by holding the asset would you create more uh, success and more opportunity in your life by deviating or pivoting to another asset businesses pivot all the time i think people beat themselves up over this stuff too way too much right At the end of the day i know real estate's emotional i know human beings are emotional but you know business has to pivot constantly to come up with ways to make money think about you know all those businesses that were micro breweries that ended up making hand sanitizer in COVID, that's a pivot, right? Quite often things don't work, and you just need to redo them, and that is the reality of property investment. Um, as, uh, as, as you know, it, it is what it is, right? So uh, remember, three landlord groups. What group are you in, or where are your assets in? Remember, I think sometimes we we think about um, being a. A landlord in some weird, really weird ways. Like we don't take any responsibility or accountability around our asset. Our asset is really what is being managed as a landlord, um, and we have to give it a tick. Yep, it's a good one. It's going in the right direction. Nah, it's a lemon. I need to redo it. Or um, for many landlords, I call them manage growth. In other words, they don't have enough capital in the marketplace. So they've got to actually get more capital into the real estate economy because they've just bought one property and all of a sudden that asset is uh, is a a good one or a bad one, but it's just not enough anyway, right? So you know at the end of the day, you saw the mathematics to end up on a hundred thousand dollars worth of passive income, you need to actually um, have at least two million dollars worth of capital into the marketplace to end up in a in a. Place where you're going to end up on $100,000 passive income. Now, the third part of this puzzle of holding real estate is the tenant, right? The tenant is a big, big part of the marketplace. And I have spoken about this before. Society is split in two. We have the have-nots and the haves. And the have-not tenant is often referred to by me as someone who's half a week away from not paying you rent. And uh, there's a lot of people in society really, really challenged. Um, And then uh, we have the have tenants, which really are renting a better lifestyle. Now, you think about uh, the idea of needs and wants. So you have a needs-based tenant. I need shelter. And you have a wants-based tenant. I want to rent a pimping pad uh, because I want to live in that precinct. They're completely two different persons, two different personas. One is basically looking for shelter, a basic human need, and the other is looking for uh, almost like a social or societal behavioural um, impact on their life. When we look at, I guess, Australia's society, often we think Australia is a middle-class society. It is not a middle-class society society. We have five skill levels work-wise in Australia where there are around 1,300 different type of jobs. Skill level one, the knowledge worker, is the biggest group today and that group earns the most money. So again, um, if we own a weird, itchy asset in the boonies, I don't think skill level one is going to rent there. Um, Skill level one wants a pretty good property to rent and because they are a metro tech, they are a leading lifestyler, they are absolutely a lifestyle tenant. They're a uh, wants tenant. I want a really good property to rent. Then you've got completely the opposite, the needs-based tenant. These are people, you know, sadly, in the economy of today, struggling. They are underemployed. They have maybe a few jobs. They are not getting enough hours to work. Um, And obviously skill level three is those tradies in the middle. Um, They are still a bloody good tenant to get. And of course, um, with the skilled trade shortages, I think we'll actually get pay increases soon. And as such, um, you know, that means you get rent increases down the track. Remember, one of the big challenges with real estate down the track is, you know, potentially, and I'm not saying anytime soon, maybe five, seven years from now, interest rates will go up. So we want to have tenants in place which can afford us to pass on those interest rate maneuvers to them. And again, a lot of society is now just struggling, right? It is really a wealth problem in Australia. The distribution of wealth is very much um, skewed. There is no middle class um, there is a, a, you know, a, a broke class and uh, a high quartile class of people that make a bucket load of money. When I talk about the highest quartile, I mean, they're taking home on average household income $280,000 a year. It's a good level of income, right? That means why not make them the first choice of tenant? I've mentioned this before what blows me away is the second biggest employer according to the australian newspaper in australia today is uber Uh, again when you think about the underemployment this is a real problem in society now when you think about how much people uh have uh let's uh, break it down they have to have some uh, money to live on where does that money go right um, housing is just a proportion of people's overall spend. People need clothing, transportation, they need communication, they need recreation, medical care, they need food. Um, and all of a sudden, you are fighting for a proportion of this spend. And again, for the more discretionary tenant, they have a lot more disposable income. So they can spend up to 60% of their income on property. However, someone who is you know struggling um, or in you know the lower uh, middle quartile of society, they cannot spend 60% of their income on housing. They may only be able to spend 35% of their income on property. And that means uh, you as a property investor, are not in a position to put the rents up because, you know, that you're competing with food, you're competing with, um, you know, communication. All of a sudden when you, you're competing with someone's consumer habits, you, are uh, you know, you're basically, you know, going to spin your wheels, you're going to stagnate. What we want as a property investor is to, um, you know, attract someone with that discretionary of money where they can spend more on property. Now, when you go to borrow money off the bank, you know, the bank, you know, basically assesses your income and they'll go, well, you know, um, they assess it basically around, you know, 30-35% of your household income can go to paying off debt of a house. And then you've got basically medical care, food and bev, etc. The cool thing about the rental market is really that's there is no ceiling on how much, um, how much of your personal income can go to running, uh, the rent. And so, uh, again, for the, um, wants based tenant, we can continue to put the rent up because they continue to want what we have as opposed to providing shelter. Now, obviously there are peaks or periods where the market does a bit of this heavy lifting for us at a broad level. And where the market also softens rents. You know, we know that, for example, COVID 19 has softened rents um, in many marketplaces, and that's just a bit of a one in 100 year dynamic. But over the long term, if we absolutely invest in these kind of um, areas which are going to attract wage growth, we're going to get a result. Or behaviorally, perhaps we um go with the double income no kids or we go with the walk score or we go with uh you know um the solar and sustainability or we go with the place economy we need a rental plan what is your rental plan if you do not have a rental plan you got to come and see me i'm going to give you a rental plan for god's sake i can't believe people go into the property market without a rental plan. After all, the only reason you go into property is to replace your income in retirement. Uh, you play the long game and then you play the income game. We know obviously for many people, they need a little bit of capital growth to begin with because capital growth allows them seed to invest in real estate and buy another property. However, obviously don't um, end up going for the capital growth claim without a rental plan. You can do both. People often say to me, should I buy real estate for capital growth or for rental growth? Look, why not buy both, right? That, that is really where we're at today. Um, there is so many influences that are going to push rents up, but also the property value up. As we know, though, wages are stagnant. Now, when you think about the budget that was put out not so long ago, in that budget, it was all about tax cuts because people are broke. Uh, you know, wages aren't growing. People aren't getting a pay rise. Because people aren't getting a pay rise and the government needed more money in people's back pockets, um, the government gave everyone uh, some tax relief. In other words, put another 1000 to $2,000 in people's back pocket for the year to cover the cost of, of inflation to cover the cost that electricity has gone up to cover the cost that food has gone up cover the cost that transportation has gone up so all of a sudden again you can see all over society everyone is trying to make this pie work and uh for us as property investors the best way to understand i think running a portfolio as a landlord is Uh, there's you, there's your tenant, and then there is the government. They are the three people that can influence cash flow on your asset. If you don't take the government, there is more pressure on you and your tenant. The government obviously will give you deductions, tax deductions, and real cash flow through depreciation uh, for properties younger than 1984. So you've got the tax man, you've got the government, they're going to help you. You've got you, you've got to earn some money, maybe put some money into the deal from time uh, to time. And then you've got the tenant. The tenant is a have or a have not. Again, you don't want to end up in a place where your financial legacy is actually has no government. Basically, um, uh, your tenant who's doing the lion's share of the work is blunderous and then it's all going to come down to you. Why not just do it the other way and uh, not overcomplicate this stuff? Um, because it works, right? It works if you do it right. Obviously, I think these, these days, particularly with the um, speed of change, the speed of transformation, um, it is really good to have a good team. You know, I'm building a six-star team. I want on my team uh, fundamentally great strategists. I want great lending specialists. I want people who can do property deals. I want property managers. I want financial planners and I want accountants. Inside my business, that is what I'm building. We have a 100 team already. And that is our goal. We want we want to basically master this thing called real estate. Because I, I think a lot of people, again, in this landlord space, um, end up not understanding the cash flow of their asset. And then they run off to really be a science experiment when it comes to wealth, right? And they'll run off to things like um, venture capitalist com- companies, which are basically never made a profit in business to give them their property management Um, and they're propped up by basically capital raises from uh, shareholders they have raised over 10 million dollars to be the best new company in the world that does it cheaper faster better and all of a sudden you're a science experiment to these venture capitalists rather than just aligning yourself with investors who want to invest for the long-term, right? And I'm a big believer if if you're a landlord, you should choose a business to follow where investors are involved, whether that's a coaching business, a landlord business. Um, You certainly need to understand that this thing called real estate is full of action. There's rental issues. There's legal issues. There's improvement issues. There's external issues. There's market issues. And uh, really, if you don't have a bit of a doctrine and a bit of a mandate as to what you're doing and you don't really know who your team is, um, you know, some people can do this by themselves and all power to you, but most people I find really do not have a clear game book when it comes to understanding real estate and, of course, this puts them in a position where they don't end up with a quality property they don't end up in a quality location owning real estate when the basic principle of real estate is location 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 they don't end up with a quality tenant and of course everything blows out and all of a sudden they put themselves in a position where they've got to get rid of the asset and start again remember there are three types of landlords a landlord just getting started hey do it right you've got the ability to uh, build a magical portfolio. In some respects, you know, the best thing about not owning real estate is if you work out what is going to be popular, what is the right plan for you, you can build a magic portfolio without having made the mistakes of many of us older investors and you can leverage off us. You can leverage off other people's education The second type of landlord out in the marketplace is a managed-maintained landlord. You've bought the right assets, you're on your way to your $100,000 passive income in retirement, you've got enough capital into the marketplace, and uh, really, there is nothing more to do than just hold on to those properties, congratulations to you, and of course, then there is the type of landlord that needs to have an honest conversation with themselves, Are they a manage and rebuild landlord? Do they have an asset which is actually going to work out in retirement? Um, I'll leave you uh, to ponder that one if you do own real estate. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Bit of a long one. I'm going to sign off, um, have a bit of water, and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Anyway, I'm off. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.